Yeah, thanks for uh, taking some time. Uh, no problem. Did you have a comic book or something there behind you? I did, yes. That was a gift from a, a workshop I did in Florida. Are you into uh, a, like fantasy or uh, sci-fi or anything like that? No, I, I conducted a martial arts workshop in Florida. So I'm a martial arts instructor as well. Uh, and so they gifted me a limited edition, a limited edition print of uh, Shang-Chi comic book. Oh, did you catch the movie? I did. It was all right. I yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. The, the local boy hitting it big. Yeah, I thought it was well done. You know, it wasn't great, but it was what, it's what I expected uh, for a first film from Shang-Chi. I'm sure we'll get uh, much more deep into it as uh, now that they've recruited a fan base. Now, was the martial arts that like come around the same time you were into music or what came first there? That would be a weird one. Actually, I started, I wasn't serious about martial arts until I was in my early 20s, but I actually started with it. My dad was a prominent uh, practitioner and quite successful practitioner when I was a child and I started under him. Um, but it, it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't attract me. I didn't find a voice with it yet. Uh, it was always music, even since I was a child. You know, uh, I was raised with two different schools of thought of music. My mom being more the punk rock, new wave mom of the 70s. And my dad being the roots ska, roots reggae ska, Motown, classic soul and R&B guy. So I got influenced by both of them and music was always in the home and music has always been part of my life. So that's my first and last love always. And more appropriate to say, not just my love, but you know, part of who I am. And they both are, you know, some people would consider music or DJing as a hobby. Uh, for me, it's just who I am. I wouldn't not be who I am without them. Well, that's really interesting. Even both styles you mentioned there, the ska and the, the punk edge, because both have like a history and just from the streets, you know, from real people just putting things together. Well, ska and Root Boy and Roots is, you know, rock steady all comes from the working class. And that voice and music not only comes from the strife of being of a low, lower socioeconomic bracket, but of a, of a socioeconomic bracket that was marginalized and, and exploited because they were hardworking, working class people. The, the roots of reggae is ska. You know, the roots of ska is rock steady. And they're kind of synonymous. And the roots of that is traditional Afro-Caribbean uh, song, song uh, and means of storytelling and carry, carrying on tradition as most ethnic cultures are. And that's what music is for the most part when it has a sociopolitical voice. It's a means of communicating and conveying a message uh, of the marginalized, of the suffering, of the voiceless, uh, of, the, of the struggling, of the battling. Um, and without the roots music of ska and reggae, we wouldn't know punk rock because they are synonymous. You know, that, that just like rock and roll, rock and roll came, you know, from the impoverished corners uh, and seedy bars of, uh, of African-American neighborhoods where it wasn't rock and roll. It was jazz before it was jazz. It was blues before it was blues. And then it took some form and structure. And as it took form and structure, it became much more popular. And as it became more popular, you know, it got traction with communities of prominence, you know, being white people or Western people. 
and then got their popular terminologies of rock and roll and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, such as punk rock as well. But that's the beauty of music is that it is a voice for everybody. So in terms of instruments, were there kind of indigenous instruments over there that um, influenced some of your work? Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and always just very simple. Um, a variety of percussive drums, you know, like every culture, there are drums, you know, like I'm, I'm struggling right now to remember the name of one traditional drum but it's a simple elliptical drum uh, covered in pigskin. And it was just a simple bang and sing and uh, sing with chorus construct, which is very much the byproduct and influence of African migration and the means of telling story. You know, having a beat, having a drum, somebody would sing the, the verse and, or the verse line and the chorus line would be repeated shortly thereafter. Um, there are a few popular songs that were hand that have come down over the generations that were actually recorded. And the one most popular one that I could think of is a song that was made very, very popular in the seventies by an act called Boney M. Boney M who everybody knows did Rasputin, rah, rah, Rasputin, yeah. the Russian queen, but they did another song, which, <clears throat> excuse me, is called rivers of Babylon, which was originally done and recorded by a ska roots act called the melodians and it talks about and it's a traditional afro-caribbean track that was sung over the generations documenting and comment and singing about the, the extraction of the african peoples you know and african people are indigenous people they're indigenous to africa uh, their extraction their transportation overseas to their exploitation and how what's kept them here is you know, faith in spirit, faith in one, faith in each other, faith in community. Uh, and that's, that's a song that is most prominently recorded and that does tie back into the centuries. So the Melodians, are, are they from the Caribbean area as well? They're Jamaican, yes. Okay. So were they part of that first wave then, of that sort of deal? Not necessarily the band themselves, but definitely their ancestors were descendants they are descendants of their ancestors who were indentured slaves or a labor or laborers or slaves traded slaves so the co combination there makes me think of bands like operation ivy that had the ska element and, and a few other things going on and also the the subject matter but then you move a bit further when it was really commercialized on mtv and that sort of thing and how did you feel back then when when ska was sort of this um light is presented as sort of a lighthearted thing just that was on tv uh, you know what? i was totally fine with it i i appreciated and you mentioned bands like operation ivy who eventually became rancid you know uh, there, but there were other bands at that time you know the satellites uh prince but the busters of uh, the toasters um we look only a decade before that you know with the specials uh the clash not exclusively ska but at times in, in invoking a lot of Jamaican tones and sounds, but it would be reggae or ska. Um, madness, the English beat are a great example, the police. Uh, and then into that evolution to the 90s and late 90s into the 2000s, you know, via the No Doubts, the Safe Ferrises, uh, Suicide Machines, uh, and things like that. You know, as much as a part of me is a purist about music, and I love pure roots music uh, in any form, whether it's punk rock, whether it's new wave, whether it's alternative, whether it's punk, whether it's hip hop. Uh, with this electronic, 
I'm also a big fan of those who have taken that influence and have found a means of giving it a bigger platform and voice and introducing it to the masses and making it popular music. You know, some people would shit on No Doubt, like, oh, they're not really ska. Well, no, they're not really true ska, but you can't negate the ska that's in their music. And I think it's great because them introducing ska as a popular band and by having a prominent front woman, they're not only introducing, they're not only a gateway band for other people to explore the branches of ska and the history and the roots of ska or punk rock or alternative music as a whole, that they're also giving, Gwen Stefani gave a platform for women as well to be able to say, hey, I can be and I want to be just as powerful and prominent uh, a social and musical and artistic figure as she is. And again, that is the beauty of music. It gives voice and opportunity to everybody. Uh, of course, some people would only look at things on a scale of one to 10. It's like, well, I can never be a 10. But that 10 is also relative as well. It's not about being the 10 relative to the success of the music industry. It's about being a value of 10 relative to yourself. Are you being true to yourself? Are you, are you really, are you doing this for the passion of self? Are you working hard at that? Are you understanding that balance of uh, objective professional endeavor with subjective artistic investment? And once one, one finds that balance, you know, it expands that appreciation and that richness for not only engaging and sharing that art, but celebrating the art. And then when you begin to celebrate their art is when you start to give back and other people are influenced and inspired by it as well. And that's why I'm a huge fan of people who take some roots genres and roots musics of any kind. Like I said, I explained uh, the ones I cited already, punk rock, ska, hip hop, uh, reggae, alternative music, electronic music, you name it. When it becomes popular when it becomes mainstream and to some degree formulaic the formulaic stuff let's be real can be quite boring and homogenous but its value is that it offers a gateway to others to explore 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 the musics as it best relates to them you know a band i can think of that was very prominently backlashed against uh, going back to 1991 and 92 when they released quote unquote their commercial album uh, was metallica when they released the black album they were completely marginalized by the metal community. Oh, this is garbage. This is a pop album. This is not a metal album. But that black album introduced metal to the masses. It's not that people weren't aware of metal. When I say that it was introduced to the masses, that it was, being, it was now being mass consumed. They were selling tens of millions of that album. They were selling out stadiums that traditionally were not sold out by metal artists. Previous to that, the closest metal artists that were selling out stadiums of that caliber were Led Zeppelin, but they weren't the caliber of metal or the style of metal that we knew Metallica to be, that thrash style. You know, nobody, would, nobody and other bands that followed were able to enjoy those successes because they were able to create and write an album that was popular and provided for mass consumption and mass audience and mass reach. And I think it's so important. And I think this is why I'm also a fan of pop music. I think pop music is freaking amazing. Now, a lot of people would dismiss a lot of it as fluff. And yeah, let's be real, some of it is pretty fluffy. Uh, it's pretty crappy. But let's not forget, first of all, pop music is, or like music in general is entertainment. You know, it, it's, it's a platform of entertainment. For those of us who indulge and immerse ourselves into it, it means something more. It's something artistic. It's something personal. It's something intrinsic. It's, it's a voice. It's it's our history, it's our roots, it's, it's a variety, it's a, it's a means of 
uh, social connectivity. It's a social uh, means of tribal identification and, and uh, interaction. Now, the Metallica point is really interesting because I remember even hearing George Strombolopoulos talk about it and seeing them come up and just being at one of their concerts in the early 90s and just seeing the mass of people and the fans with the jackets and the hair and and just feeling like this is really something like he's never seen before. This many people um, enjoying this genre like out and about in the world. And it was just kind of spellbinding to see that like in a mass for the first time. Mm-hmm. George and I used to have uh, great conversations about that. I started working at the edge slash CFNY in 98. Uh, and he had started shortly after and he started doing uh, his metal show. Uh, I can't remember what the name of his show was now. And it was late night and we would chat about all kinds of things. And one of the things that we, we bonded on is that he and I were the only two Deftones fans at the time at the station. Oh, right. uh, and I was the producer, programmer, DJ of the Edge Live to Wear Weekend uh, from the Kingdom, Phoenix and Whiskey Side on Sundays for six years. And I remember I played Deftones on air and my music director was like, what are you doing? I'm like, trust me, these guys are going to be something special. And I'm just playing my own summer. And it was a year and a half later when White Pony came out and change just blew up. You know, and I got a chance to hang with the guys, interview them, get drunk on sake with them, hang out with their, hang out at their show. Uh, and again, you know, their, their ability to reach those levels of success were because bands like Metallica were able to do that. And they look, and, and conversely, like Guns N' Roses doing the same thing, you know, where they did Lies in November Rain, where they kind of followed some of what the Beatles did. You know, the, even the Beatles went away from their primary construct that made them popular and started exploring they kind of went in reverse. They went from being somewhat more popular and constructed doing pop music and being more constructed and formulaic, but they also revolutionized music to the construct that we know it now in popular music, which is verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus. You know, every song like that is because of the Beatles today. They revolutionized that structure, but as they evolved, they become much more experimental and they started experimenting with sounds, you know, and they, it's argued that they did the quote unquote first punk rock song uh, with Helter Skelter. And some people cite that as saying, well, that's the first metal sound with distortion. Up for debate. But at that time, so many people were experimenting with uh, distortions and sound effects and alternate tunings and, and so on and so forth. And we find that those bands, as time progressed, and we look at bands like Guns N' Roses, like I said, releasing November Rain, they kind of followed that epic songwriting construct that you know, the Beatles did and Led Zeppelin did. And they got the same backlash from their fans who were all like, if it's appetite for destruction or nothing, everything else sucks, you know? Uh, and uh, that is a, a, a way of thinking that I never really related to because even when growing up, uh, and I'm glad that it isn't that this, this way now, and I don't think it's been this way for as long as I can remember. And this goes back to a conversation that I'd had with my music and program director, I remember in 2000, when I'd said to them when we were at the station having a music meeting, that if we were to walk down right right now to the corner of Young and Dundas Street and ask, ask someone for their CD wallet. Yes, that was the era, yeah, CD yeah. wallet, right? Uh, their CD wallet would have everything from Slipknot to Eminem in it. And it would be so diverse. Whereas when I was growing up and same, you know, for most Gen Xers, Gen Ys, and before that, you know, the attitude was you listen to this type of music, you hung out with this kind of crowd. And even if you listen to this type of music, like if you listen to the Beatles, you didn't listen to the Stones. If you listen to the Stones, you didn't listen to the Beatles. If you listen to Black Sabbath, you didn't listen to Led Zeppelin. You know, and that made no sense, sense to me. It's like, I'm going to listen to everything. You know, I love all music. You know, personally, my, my, my personal saying is there's only two types of music, good and crap. And I only listen to good music. Did you catch the last Deftones concert? It was about a, a month or two ago. 
in Toronto? I didn't. I didn't, but I've had the chance and opportunity to see them many times. Um, I saw them open for Black Sabbath with Pantera back in 97 when they were still touring around the fur. Uh, I hosted them, interviewed them, and took them for sushi and sake uh, in 2000 for White Pony. Uh, I saw them tour Diamond Eyes. Uh, I saw them tour Ohms. Uh, every time, I just love what they bring to the table. I'm, I'm a massive Deftones fan. I remember that 2003 concert that was that big summer tour where it was Metallica, Deftones, um, Linkin Park, I think Mudvayne were on it. And That's right. That really, that really got it going. And um, I think at the time it was kind of seen as maybe in the mainstream, that sound kind of going out and maybe the indie indie music kind of bubbling up a bit at that point. Yeah. Um, that new metal sound, if you want to call it that, I, I, I don't like putting Deftones into that new metal sound. They unfortunately got pigeonholed into that sound just because there was a rise of that music at the time. You know, they've been doing it since 94, just like Korn. Korn been doing it since 94 and before that. And they just, Korn was their own sound. Deftones were their own sound. You know, other bands were influenced by them. Like, let's look at the obvious ones, like Linkin Park, who you mentioned, and, and Limp, uh, Skin Dread, uh, and the like, Head P.E. Uh, you know, they, they, there was a movement that Deftones and Korn had inspired same with public enemy and rage against the machine they inspired that like if there was a roots to that era of movement it's rage against the machine but it even starts before that with public enemy you know it's public enemy rage against the machine corn deftones and then everybody else falls into place after that uh, urban dance squad as well as part of that area era and they deftones kind of fell into that unfortunate category of new metal but they weren't they were just deftones just like corn is corn you know like how do you classify them some people say new metal some people would just call them metal uh, personally i just call them both alternative metal because they're metal but they're an alternative as well and i find that with those two terms or alt metal um a greater a greater encompass it encompasses more and reflects more of their audience and their fan base because their audience and fan base is greater than just the new metal sound you know, they listen to classic metal, but they also listen to stuff like Nine Inch Nails and uh, or IMX or Sneaker Pimps uh, or Ice Cube, Ice T. Um, it, it, it's a spectrum of sound. And that's, again, kind of rounding out this point, the beauty of where I love how music has evolved with people nowadays is that although we have identifying genres and subgenres of music, for the most part, no one identifies themselves exclusively with a genre or subgenre anymore. And those that do, all power to them. I think that's totally fine as well. But we live in a world full of color. You know, to look at things as black and white is to de deny yourself, you know, the opportunity to see everything. One of the bands that, you know, like you said, a, a really unique sound, I think uh, it's called Sun. And it's really mm -hmm. the, just the ambience. And I'm, when I hear that music, sometimes I'm thinking like, is it really just a vibe like how do they even come up with this or get the ideas because on first glance at surface you might think well it's all the same it's just a rumble but really they do spend a lot of time layering and all that sort of stuff for their music sure um a testament to their commitment to the art and as well as the craft of songwriting and producing and recording part of what the 
part of music that I think more people are starting to recognize now as music production has become much more domesticated and accessible because it's affordable. That people are realizing, wow, it's just, I, I just can't be passionate about what I do. Like you have to be a scholar about what you're doing. You have to learn your craft. You have to learn about your equipment. You have to figure it out, make mistakes and develop your sound, understand multi-tracking, understand harmony, understand uh, a variety of things. Even, you know, you were, you started, you were talking about how indie started to make a, an emergency. You're talking about sun as well. So I guess parallels there. Um, look at a band like Arcade Fire and Block Party emerging from that era in 2004, right. 2003, 2004, where their sound is very simple, but also you can, if you dissect it in its simplicity, you can hear that there's great analysis and commitment to how they constructed those songs and how they recorded and how they produced it to get the sound that they wanted, to make it still sound so indie and simple, but also very powerful. I remember and, one early performance of uh, Arcade Fire and it was maybe the first or second album and you know everyone was singing their praises and they had a TV performance with Bowie and you could just tell the members were so giddy that this they couldn't probably believe it was happening. Uh, unbeknownst to many, David Bowie was a fan of the band. Um, and he ends up making a vocal appearance on Reflector. He does the harmonies on Reflector. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that must have just blown them away at the time. Well, if that blew them away now, you can only imagine with how they felt recently when Peter Gabriel reached out to them and is now on one of the songs of their new albums. On their latest album, pardon me. Right. And it's an, it's an incredible song. And to have two mega influences of music on your records, like David Bowie and Peter Gabriel. Wow. Uh, I had a chance to meet David Bowie, you know, in back in 2003. And that was the only time in my life of the years of meeting all kinds of artists, hanging out with all kinds of artists over many, many years, opening for acts, uh, doing shows, touring, working at the station, etc. The only time I ever felt starstruck, starstruck was meeting Bowie. And you've, we've all heard that phrase where, uh, someone says, you know, when, you, when you're taking your last breaths or you're dying, your life flashes before your eyes. Well, when I shook his hand, what flashed before my mind and my eyes was the recognition that I was shaking the hand of history, that I was shaking the hand of the Beatles. I was shaking the hand of the Velvet, hands of the Velvet Underground, the Rolling Stones, the Who. And it was just, I was blown away. And I remember saying to him, you know, I've been standing here this whole time as he was making his way along introducing himself and saying hello to everybody. I said to him, I said, I've been standing here this whole time trying to figure out something unique to say to you, but I just realized that there's nothing that I could say that you've already, already haven't heard before. And he just very wryly in his very polite British accent said, well, that's a mouthful into itself, isn't it? <laughs> and then he just put out his hand and said, David. And I said, Dwight. And he says, nice to meet you. And then he went on his merry way. Did you and ever come across a, Lou Reed in your travels? I wish. I wish. I would have loved to have met Lou Reed. Uh, the Velvet Underground uh, and Lou Reed's music are, the Velvet Underground particularly, uh, one of my biggest musical inspirations and influence as well. Like Bowie, the VU, I love everything Trent has done as an evolved perspective. Zeppelin, Desmond Decker, the Melodians, uh, the Wailers, like so many to mention. Those are the first ones that always pop in my mind when I think of personal influences. Uh, but, but Bowie is Bowie and the Velvet Underground slash Blue Reed are, are high, high up on that list. Yeah, something that strikes me about Lou Reed is that it always seemed like he, he carried like a certain amount of pain with him. 
just mm-hmm. like in, in how he talked, but he was kind of combative and just something maybe he didn't really talk about the fifties or his, you know, growing up, but there was always something out there. Not that he was trying to prove something, but you know, he was really his own person. And just this kind of, even the sixties saying, you know, we hate the hippies, right? Like they were really their own thing. Yeah. That always struck me with him. Like just a difficult character in some sense. He again was an artist who, if you, yeah, he was very difficult and kind of stubborn and standoffish, combative, bitter, jaded for a young man at his age. And one thing, if you look at artistry as a whole, throughout the history of mankind, whether it's music, visual, performance, you'll always notice that the most prolific and influential artists have always been tortured in some way. And tortured in that they either do not have a voice that represents or can relate to what they're feeling mentally, emotionally, uh, and spiritually. When I say spiritually, I don't mean from the religious context. Mm-hmm. I just mean their, their general makeup of character and that they themselves become that voice for a generation of voiceless people. Just kind of going back to how we started this conversation, what music and art is. It's a voice for the voiceless. You know, uh, Think of others who are tortured. For example, Beethoven, absolute madman. Leonardo da Vinci, absolute psycho. Yeah, Van Gogh like, and you know, all those stories of Van Gogh. And- sure. Um, and interestingly, if you notice anything about the most prolific artists, they, they abuse themselves and their environment. At times, their environmental abuse is, is not something to be celebrated. And there are some things that hit, you know, I'm sure some secrets have died with time of how some of their abuses have had negative impacts on people or their environment. But for the most part, it is that it is that longing to have a voice and be able to speak out or at least find some expression for whatever it is that they're feeling or thinking that leads to them being such prolific creators. Uh, Lou Reed being that one. And I've often found, you know, like I said, since I was 13, when I was 13, a friend of mine, Ian, Scottish friend of mine, who I'm still friends with to this day, gave me a cassette. And he gave me this cassette of a band that he was in. And the band he was in was called Paz the Gaz, uh, P-A-S-T-H-E-G-A-S. Right. But inside was the Velvet Underground tape. And he's like, here, I made you a mixtape. Listen to this. And I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, listen, I know you like listening to punk and stuff like that. And Susan DeBanchies and early Cure stuff. He goes, and Bowie, he goes, you'll love this. You need to listen to where... Bowie got his influence from. I was like, okay. And I heard Sweet Jane. That was the first track on. I'm like, oh, I've heard this before. No big deal. He's like, no, 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 no. Keep going. Keep going. And it was just a mix of stuff that he laid from the Andy Warhol record and from White Light, White Heat. And it just blew my mind. And I listened to that tape nonstop for years, analyzing everything about it. And the more I listened to it, the more I had to learn more about Andy Warhol. The more I listened to it, the more I had to learn about Lou Reed. Uh, the more I listened to it, I had to learn more about John Cale. I had to know more about Nico. Uh, I had to know more about everything about them. I had to know more about what their culture was, uh, living in Lou Reed's warehouse and creating, and, you know, abusing themselves, doing drugs, drinking, talking, going to beatnik bars and poetry readings, you know, dancing around in psychedelic trips. It's just expressing and exploring uh, and it just blew my mind uh, and it gave me a greater 
understanding and realization of the art of the artists that I'd mentioned earlier of how, you know, they abuse themselves in their environments. You know, we have a very purest, sometimes purest um, perception of the artists that we celebrate, not realizing that, you know, behind those doors, uh, there's some debauchery and right. there's also some darkness there, but it's because they embraced their darkness that they were able to share the light with us, so to speak. Just on a bit of a different uh, path here, just in terms of music trends, um, it almost seems like almost since 2000 and, and moving on, hip hop and rap has really just been building and building. And then maybe around the 2016, 2017, you know, the SoundCloud rap that really became a thing that a lot of ears and eyes were going towards. And now it just seems that that's really the predominant youth culture. Like it's, it's all in that same vein. Would you kind of see that as well? Uh, no, no. Um, I, I see that from a North American perspective, but I think that that perspective is also exclusively more, even more in the United States than it is here. Now, of course, being continental North Americans, we have direct influence uh, from our American neighbors, but hip hop has come from African-American in, in, in invention, uh, ingenuity, and artistic expression, blues, jazz, rock and roll, hip hop. Like punk rock is a byproduct of rock and roll, which is a byproduct of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, ska and political voice. Pop music, rhythm and blues, traditional rhythm and blues. Today's quote unquote R&B is, is not the traditional rhythm and blues that we know with Marvin Gaye's and the Aretha Franklin's and of that like uh, Isaac Hayes, soul, uh, James Brown. Uh, it's very, very different and it evolves. But that the Afro-American influence is in everything that we enjoy in today's popular music with one exception. But at the same time, the African-American African -American influence is still prominent there. And that would be electronic music. Right. Yeah, I mind you, I'm saying again, the African-American influence is still there but electronic music really propagated itself and found its roots in the early eighties. Well, more so in the early seventies with, you know, bands like Kraftwerk and Kurzweil and other synthesized sound artists that were predominantly European. And then with new order releasing confusion being, you know, lauded as the first quote unquote, 12 inch dance single blue Monday being the first 12 inch dance single confusion being that first quintessentially electronic sound. You know, and then that evolving from there with Factory in Manchester and, and giving rise to the house and techno scene, you know, and, but then here's the African-American influence, drum and bass, jungle, you know, it's, it's there. It's always there in everything. Um, and so with hip hop, I see what you're saying as a perspective, but it's not entirely true. Just right. as I mentioned, just as I mentioned about how I had that meeting with my program and music director in 2000, you know, walk up to somebody and ask, hey, what's in your CD wallet? walk into someone asking and say, hey, can I scroll through your music library on your device? And they're going to have everything from hip hop all the way through to Slipknot, to Alanis Morissette, to a country artist. And for the most part, the reason why hip hop seems so pervasive is because hip hop has become popular music. It has become pop music. Right. 
And, and that's why it's pervasive. It's popular music. It's what's charting. It's what sells. And you can ask people, hey, do you listen to this in your own time? I'm like, nah, not really. Well, then why are you here at this bar? Well, but look how packed this bar is, right? So it, it, it is a good platform, popular music. And like I said, hip hop has become pop music, has become popular music, is a, mass, is a platform of mass consumption. And we were talking about that earlier. Mass consumption leads to greater audience. Greater audience leads to greater sharing uh, and greater communal experiences. And that's a good thing. There's the bad side of it and where there's a lot of crap hip hop coming out. And then we went through a wave of trap hop, which was so shit. And we're very honest about it and very blunt. There's some good artists out there, but for a while there, everybody had the same beat, the same flow and the same cadence. And it sucked. Snoop Dogg said back in his day, if you rap the same way as I did, you were whack. And we called you for that shit. Now you, one of the first, really illuminating interviews and this has been fantastic so far was uh your spot on toronto mike i caught that one and i really liked it Mm -hmm. and one thing that um someone toronto mike had on who was uh more of a hip-hop scholar when toronto mike asked him about drake he recoiled a little bit and said he's done a lot but he hasn't really made room for the next drake like there isn't anyone really who's been made room for and he didn't like that aspect of it um who made room for drake yeah so we have them but it was just an interesting kind of interaction where he said that it's been good for the city and that sort of thing but it kind of took some of the air out of the room and now it just kind of has to sound like you said right that's the pop music so we're hearing the same beat the same kind of rhythm or auto tune and it's uh almost been made a bit boring in that sense uh, you know, I, I would dispute that comment. I understand from a hip hop head's perspective that Drake hasn't made room for someone else. I understand that from like a, a I'm a, I'm a hip hop head too. Like I love hip hop. I love classic staircase, golden era, even modern, like staircase, like throw down bars, hip hop, like push a T's latest album is like, it's one of the best albums I've heard in years, but the one that's leaps and bounds has been on repeat for me since it's come out over a month ago uh, is Kendrick's latest album, Mr. Morris. And it is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of art. It's a masterpiece of hip hop. It's a masterpiece of voice. It's a masterpiece of composition. Uh, It's a masterpiece of of subject matter, of addressing difficult issues. And as a friend of mine said to me, you listen to this album and he's sitting you down for a tough conversation as well as, as well as an experience. And I was like, damn, you nailed it. Like you said it right there. It's a tough conversation. And although from, from that purest perspective of, of the, those of us who love you know, the purism in our music, we don't see it sometimes these artists doing enough, but their mere presence and their success does a lot already. Because by being successful and by, by Drake having the profile he does, I'm a Drake fan and I'm not a Drake fan. And I'll explain why. I'm a Drake fan. Some of his music, dope as shit. Some of his raps, sick. Some of his hits, can't stand it. Can't stand it. Do I like him? Is he somebody I'm going to put on my own time? Not really. His latest album is actually really good. It's a dance album. It's kind of a top 40 album. It's really good. I applaud him for it. Why do I applaud him for it? Diversify your sound. He put out a summer record. He understands as a business person, as well as an artist, how to maintain relevance, how to maintain spins, how to maintain his presence in the marketplace so that it affords him an opportunity to put out more music. And in doing so, 
he's also establishing learning lessons and teaching lessons for other people to come up as professionals in the industry. Hey, this is what you need to do to succeed. And he shines a light on the city and he's a great ambassador for the city. And he's an incredible ambassador for Toronto and for Canada. He's never shy about it. And that's where I see where he provides opportunities. Although he's not boots to the ground, he's not grassroots, you know, he's not, he's not knees on the sidewalk. He does a lot and he has done a lot for this city's profile and credit where credit is due. The profile of Toronto in, on the global scale, when I was younger, Toronto had a massive profile on the global alternative new wave scale because Toronto used to be through the 80s, 80s, the crossroads of North America. Any band who made it big at the time, like U2, like Simple Minds, like Cure, like Susie and the Banshees, New Order, and like, when they traveled from Europe to here, they played Toronto. And if they broke it in Toronto, they broke it in North America. That's not to say that they didn't break in North America, like U2 and and bands like the police, but if they had successful shows here, it oftentimes, they would, they would say that it was their 10 years here in Toronto. For example, when U2 toured their album War, they did a four night stand at Massey Hall. Simple Minds did the same thing. You know, Tears for Fears, not, they didn't do a four night stand. I was there at one of the shows as a teenager tell my mom, I need to go to the show. She's like, all right, let's go. Um, and other acts like that. And, He's doing that again, and he's evolved that profile of the city again as a music city, as a place of urban representation and urban culture. Now, Toronto, as it evolved into the 90s and 2000s, was the hub of nightlife entertainment in North America. Like We had one of, if not the most robust nightlife entertainment industries it was insane. At one time on Friday and Saturday nights during the entertainment district between Richmond, between Queen Street and King Street through the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, there'd be 150 to 200,000 people congregating in that area. And there were clubs next door to each other, one after the next, some piled on top of each other. It was concerts, it was shows, it was big concerts, it was live shows, it was club nights, multi-level clubs that I played in, was residents in, there was, they were all over the place. And He's now it's evolving and he's changing that perspective as well to what we offer, uh, to what Toronto has to offer with urban artistry because Toronto was never on that radar of quote unquote urban artistry. And I think what he's doing is great. I think what he's doing is great. Again, I do see the perspective of the hip hop head and I agree. I would never disagree with that because they also see things from a deeper perspective of immersion that I don't, but even though, I still see it as well and can appreciate that perspective, but at the same time, credit where credit is due. Um, finishing that thought, here's something I say to people. Uh, I love Canadian music. I love Canadian artists. Uh, a band I don't like is the Tragically Hip. But even though I don't like the Tragically Hip, I would never say turn them off because it's not that I wouldn't, I don't enjoy listening to them when someone's playing them or they're playing in the background. They're just not something that I relate to or connect with, or that's something I would play on my own time. But one thing I will always have for them is unconditional respect for their success, their talent, their songwriting, their impact and influence, not only as musicians, but what they've done in reflection of Canadian culture and society and their contributions to it. And that's undeniable. Drake the same way. You don't have to like him but it's hard not to respect what he has done to contribute to Canadian culture, music, and identity. Nelly Furtado, Nelly Furtado, the same. 
Sarah McLaughlin the same, Rush the same. These are artists that there's no really middle ground. You kind of like them, you kind of don't. No, you either like them or you don't. They're the kind of polarizing that way, not in a combative or partisan kind of way, but they're not artists that people casually like. Alanis Morissette, she's a, she's a megastar. She was a megastar through the 90s and still is today. She's touring with garbage. It just shows that she can sell out arenas because she's still a megastar 25 years later, 20 years later. Um, okay. I don't want to take too much more of your time here. You've given me a lot to think about, but maybe if you have time for just one more thing. Sure. Um, just going back to the whole th- uh, talk about the CD wallet and back then when, you know, that was really part of your identity and we were spending about $20 a pop for those CDs. So we'd mm-hmm. really want to get our, you know, get our, listen to it a lot and hold it dear to ourselves. But now when we have the streaming model where you just spend the 10 bucks and we have everything, do you think like a Mr. Morale type album doesn't really hit the same when you go, yeah, that was, that was intense. That was really thought provoking, but I've got a hundred more albums now for this month to listen to. Uh, cycling back, I'm going to apologize because I said Mr. Morris earlier when I meant to say Mr. Morale. And the reason why, because I was thinking, I was having a conversation earlier on about Prince. Yeah. And I was thinking of Morris Day and the time. Okay. And, and so I blurred those two together. And I realized that after I said it, I didn't correct myself, but yes, Mr. Morale. Sorry. So go ahead. Ask your question again. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Um, masterpiece album. Masterpiece album. I'm just wondering, let's say that album comes out in 2000. You buy the CD. It goes gangbusters. But how do you compare that now to 2022 when you have Spotify and you've downloaded 100 albums because maybe you've downloaded 200 because you know, you're spending $10. Do you think it loses something in that sense? That's a really good question. Um, perhaps generationally, for those of us who, I still enjoy hard copy. I really enjoy hard copy. I love the experience of holding a CD or an album in my hand. Uh, I love taking it out of its packaging and smelling the iodine uh, aroma immersed from the, the paper or the packaging. Um, what has been lost is that experience of immersion. I think not with everyone, because this is also part of the value of YouTube. And if, if I may throw a term, the YouTube generation of music consumption, not just the Spotify, is that they both provide platforms and opportunities as a starting point for someone to not only indulge and service the music and artists that they like, but as starting points to discover new musics. And that is a new way of discovering the artist. As I, we kind of talked about earlier in our conversation about how when music becomes popular, it provides platform for people to discover more behind that band's influence or other aspects of that genre of music that they're influenced or inspired by or reflecting. And the way people service music has changed, but the experience is still the same. The experience is personal, but the experience is also communal. And the experience is also tribal. The experience can be celebratory. The experience can be reflective. The experience can be humble. Sometimes it can be humiliating. Sometimes the experience can be exhilarating. Sometimes it's just an experience because it's just entertainment. And I think with music, 
as in all aspects of life, but since we're talking about music and the arts, whatever it means to you is all that matters. And however one consumes it is all that matters because it is an individual experience. And we are able to connect with music as a voice in a dialogue for us, as an introduction to engage in a dialogue with each other. And that's such a beautiful gift that it shares. No, you've given me so much to think about because like a band I really like that Mars Volt said they're having a comeback and mm-hmm. they, release, they release a new track and I listened to it a couple of times and I liked it. But I remember buying their album in 2005 and being so excited to get that CD and getting mm-hmm. it to the store early. And, you know, in those 15 odd years now, that's kind of what I see the experiences happened. Like, I love that. I listened to the CD forever and now I got this new track and I just listened to it a few times and I guess, you know, there's just so much more out there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also what's one thing you're mentioning Mars, I'm a Mars fan as well. And I'm trying to remember the name of the album that you're mentioning from back in 05 and it's the album with uh, Livia Vasquez on it. Yeah. The um, Francis the Mute. Yes. Oh, brilliant masterpiece of an album too. Um, one thing that we can't replicate with artists coming back is the one thing that they offer us at the time, and that's novelty, a new and unique experience. And sometimes when an artist releases music, releases music after a hiatus or they do a reunion, uh, we, we expect or anticipate that same experience, and that same feeling. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. You know, you could still enjoy the music how what it meant to you then but we all evolve as people as well right like the person we all were then when that music impacted us and it came out was it impacted us because of who we were and what we were at that stage in our lives and we're not those people anymore and they influenced us then into the people we are now today and so to that is why i'm a huge fan of artists when they evolve i love People, I love artists that are continuing to evolve and change their sound. Sound a, a, a perfect example of this, who can be polarizing within himself, but he does it unapologetically. Uh, is Trent Trent Reznor? You know, he followed David Bowie's model. He's going to continue to evolve and change his sound, and not because he's changing his sound to chase money or chase charts or chase sales. It's because he's chasing his 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 passion. He's chasing his his heart and his his mind and his soul you know he's chasing what is true to him and we do the same thing with music you know um the mars is a good example of you know releasing new music and you listen the first time and you're like oh my god it's gonna be amazing it's gonna be like francis but it's not and some people be like oh it's shit i don't want to listen to it remember their last album was great yeah but that was 17 years ago um same with the alexis on fire new album Lex on Fire's new album. Uh, I love it. And I've had friends be like, nah, I don't know. It's all right. It's not Watch Out. I'm like, yeah, of course it's not Watch Out. They've matured. And I love this mature sound. I love where they've evolved to. This is amazing. You know, I want that. I want, I, I love hearing when an, evol- when an artist grows um, because It doesn't make me feel stuck. I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to be 17. I don't want to be 21. I don't want to be 25 anymore. Uh, I enjoyed those years. I celebrate those years and I celebrate the music then. uh, And I still celebrate it now, but I don't celebrate it in the same way. 
Um, and Arcade Fire, another good example. You know, we were talking about them earlier. They're a, a great reflection of that. Always evolving. Uh, and I just love that. Oh, the new Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, another evolution uh, of sound for them. Not just that simple indie garage sound that they once were with maps when they first came out, uh, nor even their sound with uh, It's Blitz. You know, now they've mm. taken on a much more rich international sound. You can hear some beat and, and you know, 8-4 beat structure, which is a standard dance beat structure to what they're doing. Metric did the same thing on their latest record. Uh, and Evolution is amazing, man. That's Evolution, and it's also a reflection of where we are um, music from an anthropological music perspective. You know, they're, they're date stamps in our lives as well as in the timeline of music. And that's pretty cool when you look at it from that perspective. Are you going to try and catch? They, they announced a show in October for that, that Mars Volta for their new, uh, for that small tour. I am not, only because I had the pleasure of seeing them twice years ago. Uh, the first time was opening for Nails with uh, Death from Above, I believe. Yeah, Death from Above, Mars, Queens of the Stone Age, Nine Inch Nails at the ACC. And then when they headlined uh, the Cool House for the promotional leg of Francis the Mute, which I still have the t-shirt for. Amazing. Yeah, I just, yep. like you said, we evolved, but yeah, that's a special time definitely because that album, when I heard the Latin influence and the Spanish and also like the um, still kind of picking up from the punk influence from the previous albums and how it came together, it's almost like, how do they do it? You know, like, because I guess yeah. they were in their own evolution there, but that was just something else. Who would have thought that was at the drive-in, right? <laughs> 